Part 9 of Two Essays on Military History, Strategy, and Tactics, Mountain Warfare, 1909, and Naval Strategy, 1917, by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 9, British Navy, Chapter 7, The Navy and Army Transport. What of the mark? Ah, seek it not in England. A bold mark, an old mark, is waiting oversea where the string harps in chorus and the lion flag is o'er us it is there our work shall be sir a conan doyle the stupendous and scarcely calculable operation of transporting by sea the enormous armies which are employed in many theatres of the hostilities is the index and measure of the greatest of all the triumphs of naval power in the war namely that of establishing and maintaining a central command of the sea against this bulwark the enemy's naval forces have battled in vain the submarine may in some degree and in some circumstances affect command of the sea but it cannot exercise it it is difficult to realize all that the transport of millions of men organized as armies and provided with all that armies require has meant to the allies or to bring home to ourselves a full sense of what the responsibilities of the navy have been in safeguarding them the armies of frederick and napoleon were pygmies compared with the vast hosts which are set in the field to-day when frederick invaded silesia he had with him not more than thirty thousand men the motley army with which napoleon invaded russia the greatest that had ever been brought under a single command did not greatly exceed six hundred thousand on a liberal computation wellington in the peninsula never commanded fifty thousand men but in march nineteen sixteen mr balfour then first lord of the admiralty said that four million combatants had already been transported under the guardianship of the british fleet with one million horses and other animals two million five hundred thousand tons of stores and twenty two million gallons of oil for british use and the use of the allies in january nineteen seventeen admiral sir john jellicoe first sea lord said that over seven million men had been transported together with all the guns munitions and stores they required six months later when the united states troops began to arrive the figure may be estimated to have reached ten million the victory of germany would have been swift and decisive if the great armies represented by these figures had not come to the support of france french troops from northern africa and the east also joined her brave army because transport in the mediterranean was secure the great army of russia could have made no offensive movement if she had not received the immense supplies of guns munitions motors and other materiel which came to her from abroad because of british supremacy at sea and the shipping that consequently came there archangel from being a sleepy harbour developed into one of the busiest ports on the continent of europe italy could have made no headway if many of the things she required had not come to her by sea greece would have remained permanently on the side of the enemy if sea power and the troops transported there had not rallied her to the allies the german colonies would not have been occupied if fleets had not carried to them the troops for their subjection 
England, by virtue of sea command, guaranteed by her fleet, has gathered her armies from India, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and from every colony and possession, and has sent them to serve in France, Belgium, Greece, Gallipoli, Egypt, Palestine, Macedonia, Mesopotamia, and Africa. Not a soldier has gone afloat, but a seaman has carried him on his back." Before we can appreciate this aspect of the work of the Navy in the war, we must gain some idea of what is implied by the military service of these armies in the field. It is not enough to dispatch armies. They must be maintained and supplied. The communications of an army are vital to its operations, and the communications of all the armies that England is employing are by sea and are guarded by the Navy it would not be an easy thing to estimate the vast requirements of fighting forces, but that is unnecessary. They are on an infinitely greater scale, in proportion to the strength of the troops employed, than in any previous war. Guns are far more numerous and much heavier than they were. The expenditure of ammunition has gone beyond all anticipation, and a real fleet is required for its transport horses, mules, many descriptions of heavy and light ordnance and ammunition for them, warlike and general stores of innumerable kinds, aeroplanes, balloons, the gigantic tanks, hospitals and hospital requisites, clothing, food, forage, camp equipment, transport vehicles, traction engines, pontooning, railway, telegraph, building and mining material, locomotives of many kinds, petrol, and a hundred other stores and things are necessary, and they must day and night be in transit, without rest or pause. It will illustrate the gigantic nature of the operation if we record that between November 1916 and June 1917, 2,000 miles of complete railway track were shipped with nearly 1,000 locomotives and other supplies by railway companies labor and work for a hundred different services have to be provided also the united states and other countries have contributed enormous supplies and with the coming of the american army the volume of the ceaseless torrent the veritable niagara will increase still more history has no parallel for such operations this vast business being the charge of the British Navy and of the navies allied with it, we see how great an object it must be of the enemy to strike at the lines of supply. That they have completely failed would appear almost miraculous if we did not know that the reasons for the failure are altogether of a practical character. It was inevitable that there should be some losses when submarines and mine layers were at work, but the destruction effected has been a mere fraction of the whole, and the influence upon the campaigns is entirely negligible. The Ministry of Munitions imports 1,500,000 tons of materiel every month. The most considerable loss due to attack has been in the matter of shell components, but it did not amount to more than 5.9% of the whole supply from the beginning of the submarine campaign up to June 1917. The most serious disasters were in the Mediterranean, where submarines sank the French transports province too and Gallia, and engaged in the Salonica expedition with the loss of about 1,600 lives. The enemy will certainly continue his efforts. 
Never was a more seriously planned attempt made than that of June 22, 1917, when General Pershing's American Expeditionary Force was crossing the Atlantic. German submarines, in considerable force, made two attacks upon the transports, and on both occasions were beaten off with every appearance of loss. One submarine was certainly sunk, and there was reason to believe that the accurate fire of the American gunners sent others to the bottom. For purposes of convenience, the expedition had been divided into contingents, each composed of troop ships and a naval escort, designed to keep off such raiders as might be met with. An ocean rendezvous was arranged with the American destroyers then operating in European waters, in order that the passage through the danger zone might be attempted by every possible protection there was reason to believe that the germans had secret intelligence of the course taken by the transports to the rendezvous and of the time appointed for their arrival there the first attack occurred at ten thirty p m at a point well on the american side of the rendezvous in a part of the atlantic which might have been presumed free from submarines the heavy gunfire of the american destroyers scattered the enemy boats and five torpedoes were seen the second attack was launched a few days later against the other contingent on the European side of the rendezvous. Not only did destroyers hold the boats at a safe distance, but their speed resulted in sinking at least one submarine. Bombs were dropped, firing a charge of explosive timed to go off at a certain distance underwater. In one instance, the wreckage covered the surface of the sea after a shot at a periscope. Protected by our high seas convoy destroyers and by French war vessels, said the Secretary of the United States Navy, the contingent proceeded and joined the others at a French port. The whole nation will rejoice that so great a peril has passed for the vanguard of the men who will fight our battles in France. This incident illustrates the method of protection chiefly employed by the British Navy. When the original expeditionary force was sent to France, the Grand Fleet was in readiness if the high sea fleet should venture to issue to sea. Cruisers, destroyers, naval aircraft, and submarines were on watch and guard in the North Sea and the Channel, and the patrol was maintained, day and night, without intermission, until the army had been effectively transported. The patrol was then organized upon a greater scale as the transport grew in volume. The Dover patrol undertook a work of the highest importance and was instrumental in holding off all destroyer attacks from the eastward. Cruisers, destroyers, armed motor launches, mine trawlers and drifters, and other vessels have been constantly at work, and observation balloons and seaplanes have never ceased their vigil. The triumph has been complete. The enemy submarines have never penetrated the guard, and the channel communications of all the armies in France have been made secure. There are certain features of this organization which cannot be dealt with here. The same system has been carried into the Mediterranean and elsewhere, and the French, Italian, and Japanese navies have shared in the work. In this matter of transport protection, the British Navy has rendered magnificent service to all the Allies. General Sir Charles Monroe, after the evacuation of Gallipoli, said it was a stroke of good fortune for the Army to be associated with a service whose work remained throughout this anxious period beyond the power of criticism or cavil. 
and general sir ian hamilton reported that one tiny flaw in the mutual trust and confidence animating the two services would have wrecked the whole enterprise this is true not only of gallipoli but of every place in which the navy has been serving as the guard of the communications and the base and support of the military forces it will be understood that the transport department of the british admiralty undertook a colossal work at the beginning of the war it possessed the unrivalled experience gained during the south african war eighteen ninety nine to nineteen o one when about two hundred and seventy five thousand men were dispatched and supplied with all army requirements over a distance of seven thousand miles of sea and land then there was no enemy afloat but the operation was greater than any previously undertaken and evoked the admiration of the world as a revelation of resource energy organization national spirit good management and business-like capacity what will be said when the now incalculable work of the transport department in this war can be estimated and described the inspection and selection of ships and the conversion of them for the accommodation of troops and horses was a great business in eighteen ninety nine it was estimated that a satisfactory transport should be capable of carrying a number of men equal to twenty five per cent of her tonnage what is the rule now one cannot say there are important considerations of ballasting speed coal consumption and other matters in such business and the removal or adaptation of existing fittings and the allotting of space for various purposes have occupied the admiralty officers and officials it was a business both of embarkation and disembarkation on both sides of the channel and special provision was required for the wounded and sick the naval transport and embarkation officers have had a very exhausting and anxious time in taking up fitting coaling and otherwise preparing vessels for sea and in giving orders for the movements of ships at the ports on arrival and departure as well as in providing for the safety and expedition of all embarkations of men horses and stores and arranging for docking and like matters they merit the gratitude of the country and the allies it may be said that in all the naval and commercial ports of the united kingdom and in the french ports as well work of this or like kind has been in progress uninterruptedly since the beginning of the war it is strictly naval work and has set on an excellent and satisfactory footing by the admiralty but as the war progressed and the pressure grew greater imposing additional duties on the transport department some matters dealt with by certain of its branches and concerned with ship construction modification and repair were placed in charge of competent civilians chapter eight the navy that flies heard the heavens fill with shouting and there rained a ghastly dew from the nation's airy navies grappling in the central blue tennyson from an account of the work of the british navy in the war there must not be omitted some exposition of the gallant doings of the men of the royal naval air service they have made their mark in the war in every theatre of it and no one can tell what part they will play before the struggle is at an end of some of their work very little is known 
they render silent service like that of the navy to which they belong they do not always carry on their duty alone on occasions they participate in that of the royal flying corps of the army they have been associated with the gallant french airmen and the americans come with a new burst of energy the germans know british naval airmen as zeebrugge and ostend and in all the country behind those places at sea also when the german raiders return from their exploits and on the west front of the army too where they go at times far behind the line spying out the land taking number and note of the enemy dropping bombs on his store and ammunition dumps disturbing all his rearward services and stirring up his aerodromes and the nursing places where his fledglings whom they call quirks are taking to themselves wings and learning to fly the royal naval air service has lent its aid to the italians has provided unpleasant experiences for the bulgarians has dropped bombs on the turks at gaza and thereabout has rendered good service in the mesopotamian business and was invaluable in spotting for the guns which destroyed the fugitive german cruiser Königsberg in the jungle-clad reaches of the rifiji river from dawn to dusk these knights of the air have been flying in many parts of the world and night flying is their particular pleasure when there is great work to be done their game book is very full of astounding episodes of fighting which in exciting experiences put into the shade the thrilling narratives which for generations have delighted the hearts of boys few people know the sleepless vigil which the naval airmen keep all round the british coasts constantly flying to keep watch upon the enemy to spot his submarines to discover his minefields and to defeat any efforts he may make when transports are moving at sea such is an outline of the occupation and duties of the royal naval air service there was an air department at the admiralty before the war and a navy wing of the royal flying corps with its central air office its flying school at eastchurch and seaplane and aeroplane stations at six places on the coast as well as airships at farnborough and kingsnorth at the royal inspection at spithead of the great mobilized fleet just before the war naval aeroplanes seaplanes and airships gave a fine display development was rapid the royal naval air service came into independent existence and there is now the fifth sea lord at the admiralty charged with the supervision of the royal naval air service and representing it on the air board some of the most useful work of the royal naval air service is in spotting for the guns of the warships its officers made a methodical photographic survey of the coast from newport to the dutch frontier early in the war to assist the monitors which were then bombarding the coast and to observe and correct their fire they worked from a height of about twelve thousand feet constantly observing the development of the enemy's gun emplacements all in despite of hostile airplanes and shells that survey has been continued and the result is the finest thing in aerial cartography which has ever been achieved it will illustrate this part of the special work of the seaplanes if we describe how they began which we are enabled to do by a lively-witted official scribe who examined the records of their operations and has given his impressions 
I can't see where they're pitching, said the Navy that floats, referring to the shells of the monitors bursting twelve miles away. What about spotting for us, old son? Oh, that will do, replied the Navy that flies, and more also, but I shall have to wear khaki because it's done out there, by everybody apparently. Wear anything you like, replied the Navy that floats, as long as you help us to hit those shore batteries. Only because you wear khaki, the Royal Naval Air Service does not usually wear khaki, and sea life, don't forget you're still the same old Navy as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. The Navy that flies added amen, and said that it wouldn't forget. Wherever its squadrons were based, they rigged a flagstaff and flew the white ensign at the peak. They erected wooden huts and painted them service gray, labeling them mess deck, wardroom, gun room, etc., as the case might be. They divided the flights into port and starboard watches and solemnly asked leave to go ashore for recreation. They filled in shell holes and leveled the ground for aerodromes. They ran up hangars and excavated dugouts, whither they retired in a strong silent rush, the expression is theirs, when the apprehensive Bosch attempted to curtail their activity with bombs. Not all the good work of the Royal Naval Air Service in its cooperation with the fleet comes in to public notice. It rendered excellent service at the Dardanelles, the seaplane carrier Arc Royal being present. There were many fine achievements, including the bombing of a transport in the Straits by Flight Commander C.H.K. Edmonds, Royal Navy. Seaplanes may take the place of scouting cruisers as the eyes of the fleet and relieve destroyers of some of their scouting duties. What would Nelson not have given for the help of seaplanes when he was crying out for frigates and was groping for the French in the Mediterranean in 1798, and came unknowingly within a short distance of them? Or again, when in 1805 they eluded him off Toulon, intelligence of the movements of our enemy is of the utmost importance to officers commanding at sea and this is the service which the naval airmen have been rendering at the beginning of the war the germans enjoyed an advantage in the possession of some dirigible airships which sailed in calm airs unimpeded over the north sea surveyed its full extent and reported what they saw to the german naval authorities their number rapidly increased thus the british fleet was to a certain extent hampered in its operations now the situation is changed the enemy's airships know the peril of coming within range of anti-aircraft guns and they dread the hornets which carry special means of setting them on fire there are british airships too and observation captive balloons fixed and towed as well as seaplanes maintained in adequate numbers the seaplane played a useful part in the battle of the jutland bank and craft of the class will astonish the enemy in any subsequent naval engagement the dropping of bombs by the seaplanes or aeroplanes of the royal naval air service has become the most prominent of its activities the machines are of great power and acting in numbers they have been able to drop an enormous weight of bombs on the enemy positions particularly in the districts behind the coast of west flanders within the space of four or five months seventy tons of explosives were dropped on the german aerodromes in northern belgium 
brave naval airmen in july nineteen seventeen from a height of eight hundred feet dropped bombs on the gerben and other enemy warships at the golden horn and hit the turkish war office also in this work the young officers for the service demands youth have given proof of exceeding keenness it would be difficult to catalogue the expeditions of the naval airmen on the belgian coast they have assisted in most important operations how far such work may be continued to what range carried or what will be the full effect we do not know the navy that flies will leave nothing undone that is capable of accomplishment it has operated in association with the work of french flying men on many occasions at the bombardment of zeebrugge and elsewhere it will find a powerful co-worker in the new and gallant allies who are bringing all their forces to bear from beyond the atlantic the united states air service will develop with extraordinary rapidity and its cooperation will be warmly welcomed by british naval airmen so abundant is the confidence of americans so strong and virile their faith in themselves that some of them look to the aeroplane to end the war rear admiral bradley a thisk has demanded an immediate naval attack on the german fleet and submarine bases in the baltic by a monster fleet of aeroplanes and seaplanes he believes that the importance of naval aerial operations is not sufficiently realized by the allies and that essen may be destroyed by bombardment from the air the field of speculation does not fall within the scope of this little book the object of which is to illustrate the work of the fleet and its associated services in all the theatres of war the royal naval air service is still young and has undoubtedly a great future already it has proved a valuable auxiliary it has assisted in the important business of providing complete strategical observations it has aided the work of the commercial blockade in making more easy on many occasions the operations of the much-tried examination service undoubtedly the transport of the armies and their stores across the channel and in many seas which was the subject of the last chapter would have been conducted with less certainty and perhaps with less confidence if it had not been for the active cooperation as the eyes of the fleet of the naval flying men the long-range gunnery of warships against permanent fortifications both at the dardanelles and on the belgian coast has gained in accuracy from the observation by the aircraft of the navy this subject might have been pursued further but enough has been said to show that among the agencies employed by the british fleet in the accomplishment of the supreme duties which it exercises for the safety of the country and the support of the allies the royal naval air service holds an important place it has evoked enthusiasm among its officers who have maintained in a high degree in many a battle in the air the fearlessness resource and daring of the naval service to which they belong End of part nine.